Hi there, I'm Alistair Madden and you're listening to Season 3, Episode 16 of the Road to Nowhere European Football Podcast. As always, if you're looking for a comprehensive running order of the topics we covered in this episode, then the show notes will be your best friend. I will, however, give you the usual brief overview. In Italy, we discussed Fabio Quagliarella's trademark acrobatic brace for Sampdoria in their 2-0 win over Empoli. We looked back on Quagliarella's really quite impressive career and we asked ourselves whether or not we might soon see the iconic 39-year-old's swan song. In France, we put PSG under the Road to Nowhere microscope, analysing their 1-0 win over Real Madrid and explaining why, despite that first leg win, the outlook at the Parc de France isn't particularly rosy. Elsewhere, in Spain, we looked at the extent to which Real Betis have defied the odds domestically, and in Europe, while in Germany we considered RB Leipzig's revival following the appointment of Domenico Tedesco in December last year. We looked at all of those topics and so much more in our usual detailed way. This episode is, of course, produced in partnership with Freelance Football Ops. If any of our listeners are freelancing in football, you may be interested in signing up to Freelance Football Ops' subscription-based newsletter. We find jobs which cover writing, design, video, audio, and generally anything in football media every week. For more info, visit freelancefootballops.com or follow at FFOps on Twitter. Right, on now with the episode. If you haven't already done so, please do consider subscribing to the podcast. It will help us to grow and would be greatly appreciated by all three of us. In the meantime, yeah, enjoy the episode. Michael Jones has just about recovered from what sounded like a really quite adventurous weekend. Sounds like he was hammering the pints of Guinness, but you'll be glad to know he is alive and well for our recording this evening. He was up at the ungodly hour of half past five this morning, believe it or not. So hopefully by the time we reach the Italian section of this episode, Michael Jones won't have fallen asleep on us. But other than being ever so slightly tired, Michael, how are you? Yeah, no, I'm good, thank you. I mean, it was a bit of a hectic weekend, personally, but a fun one, and also a fun one in Italian football, which has led to Gazzetta Bello Sport calling this the craziest Scudetto title race ever. So, yeah, lots to talk about. Absolutely, Michael. It is shaping up to be a cracking title race. It already is a cracking title race, and we are looking forward to hearing more about it from you later in the episode. Rudy Barlow is just off the phone to his grandparents, uh, quite the wholesome individual as <laughs> Barlow, and uh, such was the length of that phone call that we actually had to put back ever so slightly our uh, recording time for this evening, but I, I have no doubt that it would have been worth it to to hear the dulcet tones of your grandmother, Barlow. Yeah, I mean, it was it was her birthday. It was uh, an obligatory call, and um, I, I don't want to get too much credit here from the listeners. I should also say that, as I was saying to you boys before, I was waiting for 
the slightest pause in this story so I could interject and uh, steal away to, to join you both. But it was a good, I, I want to say it was at least three minutes between the start of the story <laughs> and the end of it where I could actually get away. So uh, yeah, apologies for that. But uh, yeah, glad to be with you boys now. I'm just thinking there was perhaps a missed opportunity that we could have got your grandparents on the podcast to give their opinions on French, Italian, German and Spanish football, but perhaps we can pencil, <laughs> pencil that in for a future episode. Now, depending on which side of the fence your gran and grandpa sand on Barlow, they would have been happy or unhappy with what went on at the Parc des Princes last week. There was, of course, a brilliant tie between PSG and Real Madrid. And I think that's probably the best place for us to start, Michael, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in France, PSG registered a narrow 1-0 win in the first leg of their blockbuster Champions League round of six tie, 16 tie with Real Madrid. It was a quintessential battle of the systems in the French capital decided by Kylian Mbappe's moment of individual brilliance. In Ligue 1, the Parisians sit 13 points clear at the top of the table, and yet Despite that apparent success domestically and in Europe, noises emanating from the part de France are far from universally positive. So why exactly is the outlook not particularly rosy for Paris Saint-Germain? Yeah, Michael, it's a good question and it's probably all the more pertinent now following PSG's 3-1 loss away to Nantes. I actually prepared this question and did a lot of the research for this question prior to that loss against Nantes. So I think it makes what I'm about to say all the more pertinent. Yeah, uh, we tend to give PSG a fairly wide berth on the podcast, and that's partly because they are, yeah, they are so extensively covered elsewhere, but mostly because, well, in my opinion, the more intriguing narratives in French football tend to come from somewhere other than the capital, and I'm saying that not to belittle PSG, I'm just saying it because, for me anyway, it's, it's the truth. A lot of the more interesting narratives do come from outside of the French capital. That said... I do feel like there is value in putting Pochettino's PSG under the microscope at this point in time. So I look firstly at their performance against Real Madrid before trying to unpack why all isn't exactly well at the part of the pants and ultimately answering the question you've just put to me, Michael. So just focusing on that crucial first leg victory over Ancelotti's Madrid, I think that for PSG anyway, the game provided a really quite ominous reminder of the extent to which the Parisians are relying on Kylian Mbappe. And I say ominous because, of course, Mbappe is out of contract this summer and likely to move elsewhere. I mean, you'll be aware of that unless you've been living under a rock for the past however many months, uh, past year or so, perhaps even longer than a year. And, and yeah, I think Mbappe's performance and the extent to which PSG relied on Mbappe's performance. Yeah, it was that was quite ominous for PSG, for PSG fans. Now, the Madrid fans, of course, Sid Lowe was noting in his uh, post-match report for the game, he was noting that the Madrid fans were eulogising Mbappe before kick-off, singing his name, and they'll almost certainly get to see Mbappe terrorise La Liga defenders in the same way he terrorised the likes of Danny Carvajal and Eder Militao under the Parc de Prince floodlights. And I just think that, yeah, in one sense, obviously for Real Madrid, it was it was terrifying seeing Mbappe run at them and ultimately seeing Mbappe score that quite wondrous individual goal right at the end of the game. So on the one hand, yeah, it was terrifying, but on the other hand, it was it was a promise of things almost certainly to come at the Bernabeu. 
The game itself, Michael, I thought was, was really fascinating, at least from a tactical perspective. We had Madrid set up in a sort of 4-5-1 uh, formation, uh, roughly, and, and that was designed primarily, or at least that seemed to be designed primarily to nullify the threat posed by Leo Messi. Uh, and it did at times feel like Madrid were a bit spooked by Messi as if they were terrified of what he might do. And to an extent, yeah, that fear was palpable and it really did uh, inhibit Madrid's overall performance, I felt. And, you know, we can look at the laughably low rating given to Messi by the L'Equipe um, match ratings. I, I, I enjoy L'Equipe as a publication, but I thought that was nonsensical. That rating, I actually thought Messi played well. I know that he missed the penalty and I saw somebody writing about him as if he was a, a cartoon character with a cloud, a rain cloud hovering over him at all times, uh, which I did find funny, but I actually thought Messi played quite well and I thought just his presence and the potential of what he might do was enough to, yeah, as I say, to inhibit Real Madrid and to really yeah, to make them scared. And that fear was palpable. I think that fear could be felt throughout their performance as a whole. And it enabled Mbappe to do what Mbappe did. And that was to to be so excellent and to ultimately be the match winner. But elsewhere, yeah, Marco Verratti and Leandro Paredes, I thought were mightily impressive in midfield. Verratti was almost biting into tackles and rampageous fashion. He seemed to spend more time tackling than not tackling. And there were some really satisfying tackles as well. So a tackles where someone slides in, wins possession back in an advanced position and then plays a really quite progressive pass. And yeah, Verratti did that excellently on, on more than one occasion. But perhaps inevitably, despite those performances from the likes of Messi, Verratti and Paredes, it was Kylian Mbappe who was the difference between the two sides. And that point, i.e. Mbappe being the ultimate difference maker. That point brings us nicely to my attempt to explain why, despite the first leg win over Madrid, the general outlook at PSG isn't particularly rosy. Now, without Kylian Mbappe, I think there is an argument to be made that PSG would be almost joyless, <laughs> which sounds strange when you think about the rich squad at their disposal, but I think I think Mbappe's been one of the sole sources of joy at the Parc de France this season. Johnny Lou, writing in The Guardian, spoke of PSG as a sort of sporting great Gatsby where everyone is partying, but nobody is really having any fun. And I think that's a perfect analogy, to be honest. It seems as if everyone should be having fun. There's this sort of like grandiose atmosphere. There's a lot of money spent, you know, a lot of lavish spending, but is anybody really having fun? Is anybody really liking the next person along in, in the party? And I think that was a yeah a perfect analogy. And that feeling, i.e. of it being a party where nobody's really enjoying themselves, I think that feeling would absolutely be compounded where Kylian Mbappe to leave. Interestingly enough, Kylian Mbappe was rested against Nice in the Cup. He was brought on, I think, for the last... 20, 25 minutes or so. And PSG were woeful and, and, and lost to an, to an extent without him. And, and ultimately, they lost that game against Nice. So they're out the cup. And when you bear in mind that, I mean, more often than not, PSG will, will walk the league. The cup almost gives them an added, an added excitement, if you like, in addition to the Champions League, given how dominant they tend to be in league. And so they're out the cup. And all of a sudden, all you really got left being so far ahead in the league, all you've really got left is the Champions League. 
And I think, Michael, I think the malaise stems from the fact that the only thing which would ever be enough for PSG to be fully satisfied would be to win the Champions League. And anything less would just leave them feeling unfulfilled and their manager ultimately worried for his job, facing the sack. And it feels like with PSG, we're always asking the same questions. Where are they going? What is the team's purpose? Just what what is the point of, of PSG? ultimately and maybe I'm being too philosophical there but it does feel like PSG are on a sort of doomed pursuit of happiness say they do win the Champions League they just need to win the Champions League again because they spend so much money and because of the nature of Ligue 1 because of the chasm financially between PSG and every other team in the league anything less than winning Ligue 1 is just would be disastrous and and having said that I say disastrous but when they lost the league to Lille last season because they lost out on the Champions League as well, that was almost more of a concern for them. So it's it's a strange kind of paradoxical world in which PSG live. And I, for one, just feel like they're in this sort of endless cycle, this perpetual cycle of existentialism. Maybe, again, I'm getting too philosophical here, but I, I just think, how will PSG ever be happy? I don't know. The fans also, they're not happy either. And you might... I've seen the fans unfurling banners, criticising the players and the club's divisive sporting director, Leonardo, before their recent Ligue 1 game against Rennes. Pochettino's tactics, for the most part anyway, haven't really convinced either. And when you watch PSG, there's no intelligible game plan. They're far too reliant on individual and spontaneous brilliance. And I don't think that's too much a reflection on Pochettino because we saw the job that he could do at Spurs. I just think it's the nature of PSG as a team. It's the nature of that dressing room. I just think it's probably one of the most difficult jobs in world football because of the expectation, because of the dressing room personalities and yeah, because of the nature of, of French football and, and all that comes with that. It sounds bizarre to say it, but PSG themselves really aren't fun to watch most of the time. Mbappe, Neymar and Messi should theoretically be the most exciting front line to watch, arguably in the history of world football, or certainly up there in that conversation. But they've only featured together in 11 out of 35 games this season. And I think that is quite telling. They've not had the chance to consistently play together, to click and to, I suppose, not get in each other's ways, to learn each other's ways and sort of time their runs and mould their runs accordingly and mould to an extent their playing styles to, to complement the, the other members of that front line. The second leg against Madrid is huge, but progression alone from this tie won't be the silver bullet to solve PSG's existential woes. I do think that even if PSG were to progress, even if PSG were to ultimately go on and win the Champions League, two or three years down the line, we could probably be having almost the exact same conversation with a similar set of players in terms of their personalities, a manager similarly under pressure and fans similarly not 100% happy with what's going on on and off the field of play. I think we're going to wrap up our conversation as far as PSG are concerned there. We're going to take a very quick break before coming back to focus on the same game, but from the perspective of Real Madrid. We'll be right back. Having looked at the most glamorous tie in the round of 16, mostly from 
PSG's perspective, we should probably take a moment to unpack Real Madrid's performance to Carlo Ancelotti's side where, well, a whole load of nothing, really, to be honest. It's very rare that you see a side, the majority of which has won three or four Champions Leagues, fall with so little resistance. So, how do Real Madrid find a way forward in the return leg after being so dominated by their Parisian hosts last Tuesday, Barlow? My mic was muted, but I did let out quite a quite a large chuckle at what is the point of PSG? Um, we could do like two hours on that at some point, maybe in the summer. Um, yeah, absolutely. That could be a, a special case study specifically for PSG. <laughs> yeah, um, with apologies to PSG fans, of course. Um, moving on to sort of Real Madrid. And yeah, that was... I mean, I think we, we do have to sort of take into account the result. And if it had been nil-nil, then we're probably analysing this from a different point of view. But I, I do think that one was a just result, if not two. Real Madrid, they were a whole load of nothing. I'll get some of the excuses for Real Madrid out of the way. Benzema wasn't fit. And frankly, I, I wouldn't have started him. I think he would have had more use out of someone. Even Luka Jovic, even if all he does is consistently try and run in behind that's that's fine. That's doing more than Benzema was really on that in that match because he had a couple of nice plays. He held it up well, but as a as a team, they couldn't get out partly because of Benzema's inability to sort of hold it in to to offer himself up. And yeah, I think credit to Kimpembe and Marquinhos. I think they played him very well. But I was I was. It's funny, sort of, because I've had that sort of impression of PSG that you painted, Ali, and I've had that sort of from a distance obviously I don't watch PSG closely I've had this sort of image in my head that PSG are a very disjointed side but I have to say I think they got their tactics absolutely spot on against Real Madrid and there's one quote that really and I'm sort of prefacing this with, with a view to Real Madrid and how they're going to get back into the second leg but there's one quote that really stood out to me from Pochettino after that match that he said it was a great result so on so on but we have to show that we, we have this motivation to play the same way in the league mm. and to play, to play the same way in every game. And that really stood out because it was nothing like what I had been sold PSG were in League One and Ligue 1 and what they returned to be in Ligue 1 just three, four days later. And the way that they dominated the midfield, I think more than anything. So I was very impressed because I'd raised Carlo Ancelotti's style. I'd raised a, an eyebrow at the sight of Danilo in the starting 11. <laughs> and... I, I was worried about him because Modric can make midfielders look fairly silly at times and at his best. But the way that he essentially just played on top of Vinicius and the, the fact that he essentially took Vinicius out of the game, it was more or less his only job. He was kind of playing almost as part of a back three in the end because of his sort of task to cut Vinicius out of the game. The two of Kimpembe and Marquinhos being able to cover Benzema that completely shut down Real Madrid's sort of attacking outlets and Nuno Mendes handled Marco Asensio not only with ease, but but pretty sort of, uh, yeah, with uh, pretty dreadful con consequences for Real Madrid. And I, and I thought the way that they took away the entire front line of Real Madrid was sort of the start of that sort of suffocating of them, really, because... Although, yeah, they didn't manage to score until very late on. It was a piece of brilliance. Real Madrid just really couldn't get anything going. There was one or two occasions towards the end of the match where they moved forward. But even then, it was 
not at all threatening and, and PSG had people in position back to defend it well. And so I think those three managed to take out Benzema, Vinicius, and then Nuno Mendes had Marco Sensio. And I think the way that they pressed Real Madrid, the way that they sort of got on top of Casemiro, Kroos, Modric, yeah, okay, they're aging. And I do think Ancelotti is partly responsible for this because he does need to rest them. He does need to make sure that they are fully fit going into the second leg. But the way that they pressed them, the way that they got on top of them, the way that there was no easy ball out for Real Madrid was really, really impressive. I, I left that match thinking PSG were a much better side than I thought. And bear in mind that, okay, Kroos and Modric aren't what they were five, six years ago. And Casemiro, I don't think he's as mobile as he as he was a few years ago. He's not as um, he's not playing as well this season, certainly, as he was in the last couple. Although that's the case, it's still one of the best midfields at working the ball out of sort of a tight situation in the world for my money. And, and to do that to them was really impressive. I think that's where they won the game. They dominated the midfield. They essentially just took the ball off Real Madrid and eventually Real Madrid caved in. So it was, it was pretty impressive from PSG in my mind. And I think looking at that, Casemiro was out of the second leg. It's going to be a big miss, but that's where you start to sort of work out how Real Madrid can get back into this. So I think Casemiro goes out. I think you bring in Valverde. I think you bring in Camavinga. I think you play four in midfield and you, you look to really challenge PSG physically and you look to, look to make them run, look to stretch them a bit more because although Vinicius, he did his best to run him behind, but he was, he was pretty flat and, and didn't really get an opportunity. So I think, yeah, they need to get on a physical sort of level playing field with PSG in, in the second match. I think if they can do that, they can give the ball to Modric and Kroos and they will be able to keep the ball as long as they have more options, as long as they have a longer pass to play. And, th- and then once you stretch that out, then perhaps you can get out the PSG press. Obviously, the mental factor is going to be huge in this match, I think. PSG, I think, as, as much as... I, I actually think they've done pretty well in the last two Champions Leagues. I mean, if you look at who they went out to, Manchester City and Bayern Munich, probably the two best teams in the Champions League over the last two years. I think most of us would would agree maybe with an extra team or two in there. Mm. And, and, and so you look at that, and I can't really put that down to a mental collapse, although they did kind of lose the head a bit against Man City. But before that, obviously, they do have a bit of a history Real Madrid at the Bernabeu on a Champions League match or a Champions League night, they do have that sort of record that makes you, it, it, it can play on the mind with sort of 20, 30 minutes to go. And so I think if they can arrive at those final 20, 30 minutes still in the game, still sort of a, a maximum of goal away from continuing it into extra time or winning the tie, then that will be key. And you rely on Benzema and Vinicius to come up with something. That being said, I also think Neymar being back presents an interesting sort of dilemma for Poch because his plan worked in terms of a sort of whiteboard, in terms of a sort of planning out the match. Pochettino won that match and Ancelotti, he said that Real Madrid need to start playing higher up the field in the second leg. And, and I agree with that. They do need to take a step forward. But part of that was because they were forced back by Mbappe. They were forced back by Hakimi and Nuno Mendes coming down the line. And so with Neymar, if you add him in, you obviously take out an extra midfielder. And I think that gives Madrid a bit more space again. I think that gives them a bit more opportunity to sort of step into this match. 
Benzema should be fitter. I think, as I say, it's essential that he rests both um, sort of the, the older heads. And I think he needs to rest Vinicius as well because a lot of responsibility has fallen onto Vinicius in recent weeks. You look at their results before this match and they weren't particularly impressive and a large part of that's due to Benzema's absence. But so much of the responsibility has fallen to Vinicius Jr. that he's been trying to create out of nothing, more or less, for, for a lot of matches. And he looks a bit flat. He looks, I don't want to say leggy, because he's still still looking pretty fit and, and, and fast. But in terms of creativity, I think it's more of a mental exhaustion that he's suffering. I mean, this is his first season as an out-and-out starter for Real Madrid as well. You have to take that into account. And so I think there's factors, but that sort of allow us to to work out a way in which Real Madrid win this game. And I have to say, after the first leg, I, w- I wasn't quite sure how I would sort of pose that argument, how I would make an argument that that could happen. But there are there are sort of seedlings and, and points of hope that can, uh, that can get Real Madrid through to the end of this tie, I think. But in general... I think that yeah, I think they need to they need to rest their players, they need to get fit, they need to come out with a plan, they need to come out with a surprise for uh for PSG and Pochettino. Because one of the things about Ancelotti is as good a manager as he is, and as well renowned as he is, as good as his record is, a lot of his teams, and and he said this, he said he leaves it to the players to work out solutions on the pitch. And against PSG. Real Madrid didn't come up with those solutions. Modric and Kroos and Casemiro, who probably are the Benzema too, they're the ones that he's referring to there. They didn't manage to come out, come up with a way out of it. And so I think Angelotti needs to needs to come up with a surprise, needs to put Pochettino on the back foot. And then perhaps out they can sort of work out a way to get through PSG because they just the game was almost entirely played in their own half. And for a team like Real Madrid, as, as good as they are. And as well as they defended at times, they're just not set up to do that for, for 90 minutes. One team that has no trouble moving forwards is Real Betis, arguably the best side to watch in La Liga right now. They've scored 29 goals in 12 games since the turn of the year, fighting the good football fight in three different competitions at the moment. Their perceived small squad isn't showing any signs of creaking just yet. How are they finding a way around the fatigue and injuries that others just aren't? Yeah, it's a good question. And um, I'm sure if you cycle back to the sort of earlier podcast this season, I I probably commented on this and said that I'm not sure Betty's have the strength and depth to, to sort of cut it in three, four different competitions. And so, yeah, credit to Pellegrini for proving me wrong and making me absolutely eat my words. I think for years... Real Betis were one of those teams that, as enjoyable as they were, as good quality players as they had, you kind of knew that they would find a way to mess it up a wee bit. And so they would go through these games and they'd score three, four goals. They'd be brilliant and they'd concede three or four goals. And that's always kind of got in the way of them really making progress. I mean, they had the season under Kike Setien where they sort of finished in Europa League places and then went a bit pear-shaped next season. And then until Pellegrini came on, came in, a year or so ago or two years ago now they'd never really managed to sort of be consistent but the thing that he's installed is that kind of winning mentality to the point where winning is the default that's what they do and and it's sort of a mindset almost so some of those players that I didn't think that would maybe be able to cut it in the Europa League and would prevent 
Pellegrini from rotating quite as much. He he's managed to get so much out of them and managed to slot them in so seamlessly into the side. Managed to make Mark Bartra a reliable defender at various points. That has really changed the sort of dynamic of this Betis side. And if you look at the minutes that they've played, I think it's only five, six of them have, have played over 2,000 minutes. And Nabil Fekir is is the only one sort of over 2,500, I think. Um, which, I mean, he's a key player. He plays pretty much every game. The sort of epitome of this, in my mind, is their 3-2 win away to Zenit St. Petersburg in the Europa League without Canales, without Fikir, without the two best players. I mean, hands down, two best players go away to Senate, go 2-0 up, conceded twice. I mean, that's the old Betis. That is the, I mean, it's partly to do with the way they play and the space that they sort of open up in the game, but then managed to go and get a third goal and hold on to it till the end. And the fact that Bartra, Edgar Gonzalez and Andres Guardado, who's 35, 36 now, the fact that they can just slot in it reminds me of, and I'm going to hark back to sort of the teams of sort of 2011, 2012, where you could, or even 2015, where you could see Lucas Vasquez would come into Real Madrid's sides, wouldn't miss a beat. He'd just be perfect. He would just be absolutely fine because the competitiveness within that squad, the way that they were playing, the way that they, the intensity with which they were playing, it just meant that everyone was was involved. And so you saw the likes of Alvaro Morata, who would come in and score 20 goals a season, despite not having many minutes and he would just walk onto the pitch and it'd be absolutely perfect. And, and you, there wasn't too much of a drop off in quality because I think of the comfort in that squad and the, the way that they're all so comfortable with each other makes such a difference. And then if you extend that idea out, so if you're, if you're playing very well, you're scoring lots of goals, then yeah, two, three games, four or five games extra a season, you're going to be playing pretty comfortably for the last 10, 15 minutes with a couple goals lead and you can play it about a bit and you don't have to worry so much. That, And if we compare this to Sevilla, who are undergoing a pretty pretty serious injury crisis at the minute and have been suffering a lot of injuries all season, you look at Barcelona, who have had their own injury crisis too. Atleti, they've been very short defenders too. The fact that all those teams are so tense so much of the time the fact that they have to go to the 95th minute in every game, the fact that they are just about getting wins, the fact that every game somebody is playing out of position and, and somebody has to sort of think about their game a bit more, they have to be a bit more anxious, that I think it does have an effect. And the psychological aspect of injuries is definitely something that's been researched, is continuing to be researched. And I think Perhaps that has something to do with it. The way that Betis are so relaxed with themselves, they're so relaxed in the matches because they know exactly what they're doing, what's being asked of them. Yeah, I think that really has a has a solid effect on them, and that's part of the reason that they've been avoid, able to avoid injuries. They do have a crucial run coming up. You've got Zenit away in the or Zenit at home in the Europa League, the second leg, Sevilla in the Derby, and it'll be a fiery one. I tell you that. Copa del Rey, Rayo, second leg of the sem- um, second leg of the semi-final, then Atleti, and then Athletic Club. That's five games that really could twist their season. So I'm not going to pull the trigger and say that this is a this is going to sort of all work out perfectly. But as so far, I, I just don't have enough praise for them. At the other end of the table, Kike Sanchez Flores is making a fairly good case for him his own manager of the season candidacy at the moment. 
When he arrived, they had one point from eight games. Since then, it's 25 points from 17 matches. It's a resurrection job. But you want to examine it through the lens of a particular player, right, Barlow? Yeah, Enes Unel, again, another... I mean, I mean, to a point, he had sort of become a figure of fun amongst the kind of La Liga Twitter community because, frankly, he just didn't look very good. And he moved to Hitafe for about $8 million. That not just raised one Carlo Ancelotti eyebrow, that raised both of my eyebrows and quite high on my forehead, I should say. It was nearly touching, touching my hairline because I, I couldn't believe that they'd shelled out that much for him. I just didn't see it. And Enesunel, frankly, hasn't been a goal scorer since he arrived at Hatafe. This season, he went all the way till match day 11 without scoring. And Kike Sanchez-Flores came in, I think it's three games before. And in his second start under Kike Sanchez-Flores, he gets a goal. Since then, he's gone on and he's now scored 11 goals in La Liga, which is, frankly, phenomenal. And I think it sort of relates to something that we we were maybe talking about sort of a few weeks ago and the, the fact that if a manager gives you confidence, a manager asks you to do the things that you're good at, plays you in the right position, surrounds you with the right people, then it can really make a huge difference to a professional footballer who, let's not forget that all of these footballers are incredibly talented and on a different day or in an alternate universe where things go a little bit differently, all of them probably make it into sort of European football. But yeah, the work that he's done with Ennis Renal is just absolutely stellar. It's, it's incredible. His turnaround is sort of a, a microcosm of what's happened at Hitafe, where they're playing with confidence. They all know what they're doing. And I think partly he, he was sort of bought in to replace Jorge Molina, who I've yeah, spoken wonders of in the past. But I don't, I'm not sure if Jose Bordelas, his manager then, quite believed he was the Jorge Molina replacement. Or perhaps he was asking things of him that he couldn't do that Jorge Molina could. And perhaps that's been a case at Hatafe for quite a few players. I've, I think there's definitely been a, a break and, and sort of a, a not the Bordelas and then Michel, they definitely tried to change the style of Hatafe or, or Bordelas didn't, but the president did. And then Michel was brought in to do so. I think that had a huge effect on the sort of mentality of the Hatafe team because they couldn't quite, do what was being asked with them. And I think the way that Kiki Sanchez-Flores has come in, he's sort of gone back to the Bordelas style, not entirely, but a little bit, and and sort of, yeah, moved slightly away from it, been a bit less extreme in his ideas, but built it on a sort of solid base of a defence and, and being able to sort of press up and being able to run hard. Yeah, I, I think that's worked wonders for Hatafe. And you look at the likes of Sandro, who, again can be a comical figure at times, but he's playing really well at the minute. And you look at the likes of Adam Barry, who, who's just been flawless almost since Kike Sanchez-Flores came in. He's playing wing-backs. Damian Suarez, once again, looks looks like one of the players under Bordelas that most impressed us. And so, yeah, credit to Kike Sanchez-Flores, who, and if you've not seen him, then look him up because he looks like the absolute spitting image of Dr. House, an incredibly good series. Um, and right now he seems to have the same sort of powers of diagnosis. Excellent. Well, hopefully Inez, Inal and Hitafe can continue their good form and yeah, hopefully La Liga 
can continue to deliver such storylines and narratives. Thank you, as always, Barlow, for that wonderful summary of all things Spanish football. We are going to take a quick break now before coming back to look at German football. We're going to put RB Leipzig under the microscope and we're going to ask ourselves how they've recovered from what was their worst start to a Bundesliga season. We'll be right back. In Germany, RB Leipzig's prompt decision to sack Jesse Marsh and replace him with Domenico Tedesco is looking increasingly prudent. Prior to Marsh's dismissal in December, Leipzig found themselves in 11th place, having picked up just 18 points from 14 Bundesliga matches. Since Tedesco took over, however, the side from Saxony have obtained 19 points from a possible 27, climbing up into the Champions League places in the process. So what steps has Tedesco taken to enable De Rotenbullen to recover so impressively from what was the club's worst start to a Bundesliga season, Ali? Well, I think there's a lot to be said for the way in which Tedesco managed the dressing room just after taking on the job. In an interview with The Athletic, Seb Stafford Boer was the interviewer, if you like. In an interview with The Athletic, Yusuf Poulsen spoke about the very early days of Tedesco's reign and spoke about how Leipzig had three matches in nine days and rather than trying to squeeze in too many training sessions and put his mark on the team, so to speak, trying to put his mark, his, his own stamp on the team too hastily, uh, they only had about three training sessions over that period of time and those sessions were mostly recovery and video sessions and I think, you know, First impressions are crucial and you do just feel like Tedesco's approach and understanding of where the squad was at physically and mentally when he took over. I think Tedesco's approach would have been really quite appreciated by the players. What we're seeing now is that the players do seem to really be buying into what Tedesco is trying to do. They are playing with a certain swagger again with smiles on their faces and that happiness was particularly notable during their 6-1 win away at Hertha on Sunday night. Obviously players being more jovial won't in itself win you games of football, I'm not saying that at all, but there is a lot to be said for a more upbeat squad and you could see when the players scored they just seemed happier, you could see Hamid Simakon and Christopher Nkunku having a laugh together on the bench. Obviously, they were quite far ahead at this point, but there did seem to be a lot of camaraderie there. There did seem to be a good team spirit, and I think that does go a long way. It doesn't, obviously, as I said, it doesn't in itself win you games of football, but it does play a really key role in sort of turning your fortunes around and ensuring that you give yourself the best possible chance to go on and pick up positive results. Just thinking back to... Marsh's brief time in charge, there were good moments, but those were really too few and far between. And when he did win, the most discernible emotion was probably that of relief in the same way that when you watch Dortmund and they win games, it's almost as if the players are relieved more than anything else to have picked up the three points. And I just got that same sort of impression whenever I watched Leipzig and whenever I watched Leipzig win a game of football, it was almost like, phew. There we go, three points in the bag. Let's move on to the next game. Whereas 
under Tedesco, it seems like the players are enjoying it a little bit more. They're taking a moment or two or three moments to really enjoy their performance. In terms of some of the changes Tedesco has made in order to precipitate the club's upturn in form, he's implemented a 3-4-1-2 formation and largely stuck with that formation. We've also seen a shift of sorts towards a more possession-based style of play. And just thinking again briefly about formations and setups, you might remember Jesse Marsh experimented with a back four, but that really didn't bear any fruit. We actually saw him revert to the back three, which we saw so often last season at Leipzig under Julian Nagelsmann. And I think the stability of the back three, the familiarity of that back three has helped, even if some key members of that defence last season are no longer there, even if the personnel has changed. I just think as a team playing with a back three, Leipzig feel more comfortable and the results back that up. The results have been really positive. Tedesco has also overseen a shift away from the intense pressing from the front, which was so characteristic, let's not forget, of Jesse Marsh's Leipzig. We still do see a degree of pressing in the middle third, but that pressing is more focused than it perhaps might have been prior to Tedesco's arrival. And in the defensive phase, Leipzig do look to pack and control the central areas. They'll sit relatively deep, at least compared to where they would sit under Jesse Marsh. And they'll look to force teams out wide before then applying pressure and looking to attack at speeds when they do regain possession. And we've seen Leipzig's potential to attack on the counter at speed on several occasions under Tedesco, including their sixth goal in the route over Hertha Berlin. If you didn't see it, Danny Olmo picked the ball up and blistered up the park and threaded a lovely ball through to Yusuf Poulsen, who timed his run almost perfectly and then dinked the ball gorgeously past Alexander Shvolov, who just looked absolutely done <laughs> with, with the game. It was the sixth time the ball had gone past him into the goal and yeah, he was quite clearly fed up with it all. But Yusuf Poulsen, that goal was, was thoroughly deserved. I thought he was excellent on Sunday night against Hertha Berlin. The ultimate result of those changes that I've mentioned is that Leipzig are quite simply scoring more goals and conceding fewer goals. And obviously, you don't need to be an expert to work out that that's almost certainly, well, surely it's going to lead to more positive results. And that's exactly what has happened. Just comparing them in terms of goals scored and goals against under Tedesco, they've scored 24 goals in nine league games and conceded 10 goals in those nine league games. By comparison, under Jesse Marsh, they scored 25 goals in 14 league games and they conceded 18 goals in those 14 league games. So the average numbers are a lot healthier under Domenico Tedesco and also as well the expected goals and the expected goals allowed figures under Tedesco have been really quite positive which bodes well again for Leipzig going forward. Their XG and XGA numbers had really fallen off a cliff latterly under Marsh and yeah I wonder if I suppose what forms part of the wider decision to sack Marsh, not those figures in themselves, but the fact that they were playing in such a way that those figures were so alarming, uh, probably, yeah, probably expedited the decision to, to part ways with Jesse Marsh. If there's one reservation I would raise about Tedesco, it's that he did, of course, make an excellent start to life as Schalke manager 
back in 2017, guiding them to second place in the 17-18 Bundesliga campaign before it all went so disastrously wrong in his second season in charge. He was sacked in March 2019 with the club in 14th place in his last game as manager of Schalke was actually, you might remember it, that 7-0 Champions League loss to Manchester City. However, as we've since seen, Schalke's problems were a lot more deep-rooted than a seemingly underperforming manager. They've, of course, since been relegated to the Zweite Liga and there have been issues on and off the field of play there. So how much we can really attribute that to Tedesco's ability as a manager, I don't know. So I wouldn't be too worried about that. And obviously, in any event, I think Leipzig can actually be quite quietly optimistic that Tedesco won't suffer the same fate at the Red Bull Arena. He's got a squad at his disposal packed with talent. We've got the likes of Christopher Nkunku, who's been as magnificent under Tedesco as he has been all season. We've got Danny Olmo coming back from injury, looking in really good shape. In particular, I thought he was brilliant against Hertha Berlin, the minutes that he got, he he used those minutes well. And then we've got the fact that Tedesco is getting a tune out of the likes of Benny Henricks and Andre Silva, both of whom really struggled to fully get going under Jesse Marsh. So it looks like Tedesco has the potential to get the most out of this brilliant squad. And yeah, we know that he can do a good job in the Bundesliga. If they can build on their positive start under Tedesco, Perhaps next season, and I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here because it's still a relatively small sample size, but it's an encouraging sample at that. Um, perhaps next season, Leipzig could challenge Bayern for the title. And what a storyline that would be, because if you're not already aware, Julian Nagelsmann, the Bayern Munich manager, and Domenico Tedesco were actually course mates at the DFB's coaching school, graduating from the same class in 2016. So... Who knows if Tedesco can continue to improve this Leipzig team packed with talent, then yeah, we could see two former coaching schoolmates going for the Bundesliga title in a quite captivating title race. That won't happen this year. It's it's too late for Leipzig to mount a genuine title race. But next season, if Leipzig can continue to improve, who knows, maybe we'll have a proper title race on our hands. We're going to take a quick break now before turning our attention to Italian football. It's been another crazy fortnight or so in Serie A and Michael Jones is going to tell us all about it. We'll be right back. In a weekend full of surprises in Serie A, one of the most notable such surprises, ostensibly anyway, saw Inter lose 2-0 at home to Sassuolo. Saying that, we have seen a significant drop-off in form of late for Inera Zuri, who have gone over a month without a league win and, of course, suffered a damaging home defeat to Liverpool in the Champions League. What do you think has been the main catalyst for Inter's alarming slump in form, Michael? Yeah, it's a really interesting topic because, like I said at the beginning of the episode, they're saying this is the craziest Scudetto race ever now in Italy. And you turn your minds back sort of six weeks or so, or maybe even two months, it looked like Inter Milan were clear favourites to run away with the league title. And now 
even if they win the game in hand, the best they're going to be is just one point ahead. And momentum really isn't with them, as was on the case, as was the case on Saturday, when they fell behind to an early couple of goals from Sassuolo. It's a really exciting duo, Giacomo Raspadori and Gianluca Scamacca. Um, I think it's a really sort of interesting topic because I think for fans outside of the Serie A, um, they'll be aware of Inter Milan winning the league last season under Antonio Conte, but not so much in terms of recent European pedigree. And therefore, maybe when you saw the performance, people saw the performance against Liverpool in the Champions League, they're like, this was, you know, and it was, it was a good performance. And I think a lot of the perception was Inter Milan played well for large periods of that game. Yeah, I think inside, I think the sort of perception at Inter Milan and with the fan base is that they're capable of so much more and they had proved that over the previous few months. But there has been this sort of alarming drop-off recently and I think the main catalyst has been a real lack of confidence at both ends of the pitch. The midfield play has generally been fantastic all season with the middle three of Marcelo Brozovic, who's in my opinion, been the best player in Serie A this season. Hakan Chalanoglu and Nico Barella either side of him as a fluid midfield duo, which just create chances for fun with Brozovic at the anchor of it. And I guess some of the faults and weaknesses that may have been perceived about them before the season with the departure of the likes of Hakimi and Lukaku was that the goals could dry up a bit, but Simone Inzaghi's attacking football, attacking style of football with a similar formation has breeded really good results until recently. And there were signs of a drop-off sort of coming back from this winter break. And maybe that's just, I think I think part of the reason is, is that maybe the momentum has just was just killed a bit over that Christmas break that they had in December. Because even though they did get a few decent results in January, they won the Super Copper, they beat Lazio. You know, these were really difficult games. I think Lazio had a very level XG during the game. It took them till stoppage time in the Super Copper to defeat Juventus. And their last game before this terrible run ensued was a 2-1 victory against Venet- lowly Venezia. And they were two, they were one nil down, and it took an Edin Dzeko goal in the last minute to seal the victory for Inter Milan. And they've gone on this poor run since. And I think I think part of it is due to Simone Inzaghi potentially being an unknown territory here. He has led Lazio into a title race before, but never as favourites, whereas this is the unknown territory he finds himself in now and may go to explain some of the decision making that was partially on showing this game against the Swallow at the weekend where he was trying to have, I think what it looked like, he was trying to have a fresh team out against Inter Milan. And if you look at that result without the sort of prior context of everything else, you look at the players like Roberto Gagliardini, who played Matteo Damian, right wing back, and Alexis Sanchez up front. And you could point your fingers towards them and say, well, ultimately their squad depth isn't good enough and it isn't comparable to what the first team offers. But when you actually look at some of the first team performances during this period as well, I think it maybe goes to a wider problem at the club where Lautaro Martinez, a player who st- still so frustratingly can only seem to score in fits and spells. He went for a drive period that we spoke through about earlier in the season. His goal scoring renaissance was key to Inter Milan sort of looking like potential runaway leaders only a month ago, only for those to dry up now. And We've just seen other problem mistakes start to creep in at the other end of the pitch. And I think it's, yeah, it's just been a really difficult period. And I think Inzaghi 
maybe his biggest downfall as a manager is that there's really not been a sign of a plan B. And maybe that would be okay with Inter Milan had they played with a plan B under their previous manager in Antonio Conte, but they hadn't either. You know, it had always been some form of a 3-4-3, a 3-5-2. And that's, you know, ultimately they've been even more rigid in terms of where the personnel are deployed with the 3-5-2 this season. And when they have found themselves in tricky situations, they've just not been able to always get themselves out of it. Um, I would just finish on saying that on Inter Milan, that you know, there were, there were, it has been a really bad month for them and it could be season-defining. And that's why, you know, given the healthy position they were in, that's why I think this sort of criticism is warranted. But that being said, Simone Anzaghi has done a terrific job with this Inter Milan team. And you looked against that performance against Liverpool, you, you know, you can look at it, you know, glasses half empty, glasses half full. It was still an excellent performance against the Swallow. They missed three absolute guilt-edged chances. Lautaro Martinez had an open goal, which he, he just the ball seemed to bounce off his foot twice. I think Edin Dzeko had a point-blank header saved. Milan Skriniar also with a, an amazing chance, which he couldn't convert. And they just ultimately weren't able to put it away. But they do have a couple of easier fixtures coming up against Lenatana and Genoa, which they'll be confident of turning the fortunes around. And what could be defining for Inter Milan is just how quickly they can build confidence at both ends of the pitch again. They have a few difficult games with Fiorentina, Juventus and Roma in April. But other than that, they do have quite a favourable running for the title. And I still think they are favourites. But this was definitely the most alarming performance of this or result of their season so far. And Simone Inzaghi is now really finding himself in quite an interesting position to see how he will respond because those who've watched him for a number of years know he's not really going to change them that much in terms of the formation and the player personnel but will there be alterations to his game and Liverpool may actually be if they do see themselves out of that competition maybe the best place to start for the second leg. Yeah interesting because I did think Inter were, were pretty good against Liverpool and it was just the difference in quality that told and that's obviously not Inzaghi's fault Elsewhere, we saw a reunion of two members of Inter Milan's treble winning side when Thiago Motta's Spezia lost 2-1 to Bologna following a Marco Arnautovic double. Despite the defeat, Spezia have overcome all the odds of being relegation favourites, even with the departure of their star coach Vincenzo Italiano to Fiorentina. And amidst the imposition of a two-year transfer embargo as well, how has Thiago Motta guided Lacalotti to stability amidst all of the chaos unfolding around them. Yeah, I think it was it was sort of seen as a disastrous appointment from the off. People thought it was with Thiago Motta arriving in Spezia because maybe some of our most loyal listeners may remember our first ever podcast episode. I think we discussed Thiago Motta's deployment of a 262 at Genoa. Mm-hmm. And times have kind of changed quite a bit since then, but Whilst Thiago Motta has evolved as a coach and maybe is deploying slightly more orthodox formations, his man management seems to be absolutely key to this Spezia team. There's a number of interviews from players um, throughout the season just speaking how so highly of Motta and also about the systems used. But tactically, remains a fascination. You look on paper and generally they've deployed a 4-3-3, a 4-2-3-1, um, maybe the most intriguing formation I think they've deployed is a 3-5-1-1. One, one. 
But if you look at the actual use of some of the players and his work with some of the youngest players, because Spezia do have a really good academy. It's been some of their academy players that are key, and there's three that I really want to sort of bring um, notice to, starting with the captain, Giulio Maggiore, who is only 23 years old, the youngest captain in Serie A. He did a brilliant interview with Goal um, just a few weeks ago, which I'd highly recommend people to read. But Maggiore is a player who traditionally seems to be a central midfielder, came, was briefly spent time at AC Milan. But then he, this season, his game's really taken off. He's been a key performer for Spezia. But if you look at the positions he's been used, he's been deployed as a defensive midfielder, an attacking midfielder, a left winger. And a lot of the other Spezia players, Simone Bastoni, another player who came through their academy, who had a really good season actually under Italiano last season, but solely operating as a left-back, whereas Motta's evolved him this season to operate as a winger and more recently as a central midfielder. And Tiago Motta had a fascinating playing career. And I'm sure you all know well, Barla, that he spent a number of years at Barcelona, not his most successful years by any means, but he spent a number of his younger years at Barcelona, including making his professional debut in European football there, um, working under the likes of Louis van Aal, Frank Rijkaard, and playing with the likes of Xavi as well, Xavi and Iniesta as well. And I think there is, in terms of like his sort of ideas for football, they, the way Spezia play, they do play some really attractive football at time. And it is his use of players in various positions, which is really intriguing. I mean, the actual sort of metrics for and, and the numbers for Spezia aren't amazing this season in terms of their chances created. But you look at the sort of challenges that Mott has faced, and this is why his man management is, you know, should be an even higher stock. Like you mentioned the transfer embargo. I mean, this was an absolute disaster, a two-year transfer ban. I think people may remember Chelsea's transfer ban when Frank Lampard became manager a couple of years back, and that was for one season. Now, this is for two seasons away. It was such a serious breach of, of transfer regulations, not just by FIFA standards, but also by Italian migration law as well, which saw 19 underage Nigerian players brought to the club in quite shocking circumstances. All this has happened in the past year with this coming out, with new ownership, the departure of the longtime successful manager, Vincenzo Italiano, who has proven to be one of the best managers and surely one of the hardest managers' boots to fill in Italy with the success he's enjoying at Fiorentina, and also the drop-off of their star striker from last season, Valorenzola, who scored 11 goals for them last season. And we've seen the way that Italiano's got strikers playing really well in the form of Vlahovic and recently the example of Christoph Piatek, who's been, again, looked like a newborn or reborn striker, should I say, since returning to Italy. But I just think, and his, his goals have dried off completely this season. He's only scored two goals, which again, you know, there's certainly criticisms in Thiago Motta's sort of young career so far. But for a man who was meant to be sacked at the beginning of January, only for it not to happen on a technicality regarding his payout to then go and win manager of the month really goes to sort of re-establish that mentality, mentality he had not just as a player, but that's really carrying him through into management. And he's really overseen some tough hurdles so far. And I just say by rounding off, Spezia are by no means safe. But the fact that they're in a position where they're not 
in the immediate relegation battle at the moment, it makes me just want to give a huge kudos to Thiago Motta and the job he's doing there. And on Saturday, we saw veteran striker Fabio Quagliarella treble his goal tally in the league with this season with his trademark acrobatic brace, inspiring Sampdoria to a 2-0 win over Empoli. At 39 years of age, his best days look to be behind him, with Qualiarella set to miss out on reaching double figures for the first time in a full season since joining Sam. Nevertheless, it seemed seems as good a time as any to pay homage to the aptly nicknamed Mr. Dream Goal. Am I right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, not just a guy with a fantastic nickname, but also a player with a fantastic name. In general, I think it's fair to say. And it was a great brace that he scored at the weekend. Both of them, like you said, an, an acrobatic brace really define his years as a player, which both made me sort of wonder, you know, what kind of condition he's keeping himself in because it looked excruciating from a spectator's perspective. I think it is the curtain is starting to come down on Quagliarella's career now and that is why I think it is a really wonderful time to sort of pay homage to the career that he's had that stems all the way back to 2000 when he initially broke through with Torino was a part of the Fiorentina team on loan when they were back in the fourth division in 2003 before work, sort of working his way up the ranks and becoming an Italy international um, with really successful spells at Sampdoria and then partnering at Antonio Di Natale at Udinese say for a couple of years which was fascinating both of them became strikers for that ill-fated Italian World Cup defence in 2010 in South Africa although those who know Qualiarella will remember that exquisite goal that he scored against Slovakia as mm-hmm, it, mm-hmm. Italy got knocked out of the group stages and it was moments like that and I think his career's really split up into a number of parts in terms of those formative years that he had the early success he had and then although he spent the mid part of his career in what should have been his prime years at big clubs in in Napoli and Juventus people may well know the really documented story about him where he was unfortunately really badly harassed during his time in Naples by somebody who he turned out knew him um, constantly with death threats and it sadly did have a big impact on his career a player who you know who's been described by many and took him years to come forward to speak about this in an interview who's been described as an introvert but watching him on the pitch he's kind of anything but that with his like the most magnificent array of goals I think the timing of it you know I'm really happy that you mentioned about his his sort of goal scoring stats in the last few seasons as well because the best years of his career probably have been the last few when he rejoined Sampdoria in 2016 and from his first full season was hitting double figures including getting the golden boot only a couple of years ago I still don't think it's necessarily the end of the road for him in Italian football but maybe at Sampdoria maybe a team that's not going to be fighting relegation or maybe in the second division but Quagliarella is one of those players who I think people will remember for various reasons, whether it be the goals, whether it be just for the name, hopefully a couple for the nickname now. But he's had a truly remarkable career. He's Italy's oldest ever goal scorer. He managed to make a return to the playing team at the age of 36 after a 3,000-day hiatus from there. If ever there was a player to overcome adversity in such fashion and style, 
I'd say it was him. And yeah, I hope for everybody's sake that we have another trademark goal or two yet to see from him. Absolutely. Another trademark. Fabio Quagliarella goal would be quite the swan song for, yeah, one of the um, most iconic players of the last, what, 20 years or so. Anyway, Michael, thank you very much for that. That was excellent. Highly enjoyable as always. Thank you also to Rudy Barlow. The two of you have put in clearly a lot of time and effort in preparing for this episode and it is highly appreciated by me and I would think as well by the listener. And on that note, thank you to you, the listener. Hopefully you're staying safe. Hopefully you're staying well. We'll see you in two weeks' time. Until then, stay safe. Goodbye.